0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for Conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. In studying this week's Parsha Truma, I found that some uh, themes—I found some themes that relate quite nicely to our experiences in Israel the the week prior. When taking a look at Parsha Truma, it mostly reads as uh, an IKEA construction manual or a blueprint for the Mishkan, the Tabernacle. It meticulously lays out God's wishes. Regarding which materials to use, in what quantities and sizes, and how to exactly put them together. But before those detailed instructions, the Pasha begins with a specific commandment to Moshe to relay uh, to all of the Israelites. Tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts. You shall, you shall accept gifts uh, for me from every person whose heart is so moved. After specifying what those gifts may entail gold, silver, linen, and many other materials, God continues Vasuli Mik Dash, and let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. God doesn't, doesn't say build me a sanctuary so that I may so that I may dwell in it, Betochop. The purpose of building the tabernacle would be that God could dwell amongst the Israelites, Betocham. We'll get back to this. Two Sundays ago, 30 of us, a combined delegation of 20 TBA members led by Rabbi Klickfeld and 10 members of Congregation Agudat Yisrael in New Jersey led by Rabbi, Rabbi Ari Lucas, embarked on a trip that many of us have taken so many times before. I was fortunate enough to have my lovely wife, Laura, by my side. Laura and I have both been to Israel countless times, including during times of war. This time, the anticipation was different. On the one hand, We were both truly aching to be there since October 7th. We've each, like many of you, tried to contribute to relief and support efforts, donation drives, political activism, and volunteering as much as we possibly could from afar. But at least to me, it felt like I had reached the peak of what I could accomplish from 10,000 miles away. And as much as any time I can remember, I just wanted to be in Israel, on the ground, amongst our people, to support, to listen, to hug, to volunteer, to contribute in ways one cannot uh, from Los Angeles. On the other hand, I was nervous. Not about Laura and my physical safety, however counterintuitive that might sound to someone who's never been to Israel before. But rather, I was nervous about the Israel we would find, the Israelis we would find. While my time today won't allow me to share every single meaningful experience, interaction, or reflection with you, I do want to get everybody to their children on time. I'm honored to be able to give a representative impression of our journey. And if you would like to read more in-depth reports of our mission, please visit our travel journey on TBA's website. Upon arriving at Ben-Gurion Airport, things didn't seem all too different. Ben-Gurion doesn't feel like a war zone. It's busy with arrivals and departures, Israelis going on business trips, diaspora Jewish families coming for lifecycle events, and many, many missions like ours. Just on our plane from LAX alone, we were amongst representatives of at least three other missions from Malay and organizations that we could identify. The sites of the long walk that we've all walked, from the terminal to the passport control, were adorned with kidnapped signs for individual hostages, some still there for hostages who had since been released or, sadly, confirmed murdered. Our trip's itinerary was purposely packed. Immediately upon arriving and uniting with our new friends from New Jersey... We set out to visit Danny's Farm, a large horse ranch just outside of Rochovod, where Danny and his business partner Nier, who also happens to be the ex-husband of Danny's now wife, uh, for several years has been treating combat veterans for post-traumatic stress disorder through working with horses and other nature-focused therapeutic activities. Since October 7th, Danny and Nir have welcomed many traumatized survivors as well as bereaved families on the farm. Several were there while we visited, many with young children working with horses. Here we were introduced to Gilad, a war veteran of the Yom Kippur War some 50 years ago. During that war, Gilad told us, he lost 43 of his comrades in one single night. For the past 50 years, he has been a wreck. He had clearly and understandably been suffering from PTSD as well as survivor's guilt, But since PTSD was not a recognized diagnosis until recently, he was never properly treated. Two years ago, he started coming to Danny's farm, and it has been life-changing for him. He can finally deal with all the trauma from 50 years ago. Hearing Gilad's story, I could not help but mourn all the time, almost an entire lifetime, he had lost before finding treatments. And I was grateful for Danny's farm and similar initiatives like it across the country who are doing all they can do to address the inevitable tidal wave of mental health and trauma needs Israel will grapple with in the years to come, of which I'm afraid we're only yet scratching the surface. Tuesday, our second day on the ground, we uh, would spend in Otev Aza, the so-called Gaza envelope. We left Jerusalem early in the morning and around 9 a.m. arrived at Kibbutz Zikim, a seaside farming community on the northern border of the Gaza Strip, which on October 7th was the site of Hamas's naval invasion, where dozens of terrorists stormed the Zikim beaches by sea, killing fishermen, surfers, swimmers, and anyone else in their path. At the Mika'eli farm, we were welcomed by Richard, a friendly man in his 60s. He himself a volunteer at the farm for the last few months, who would show us the ropes of, uh, for our volunteering duties that morning. Richard explained that on October 7th, the farm had about 100 workers. Half of those were Thai, of whom most have left, though some have since returned, and another 25 or more were workers from Gaza, who obviously weren't expected back anytime soon. Needless to say, the farm, like much of the agricultural sector in the Otef and beyond, uh, was struggling to maintain and harvest its crops. The Gaza envelope is considered Israel's breadbasket, so a lost harvest could have disastrous consequences for the country. So Richard showed up and became a full-time volunteer, and with him, many others. People from across the country travel to the south regularly to help harvest crops and prepare fields, and delegations like ours show up to offer help as well. We spent the morning in a large greenhouse picking all the ripe peppers until there weren't any more. Earlier that morning, Richard told us us about his two sons, Alon and Eyal, who are both serving as paratroopers in Gaza. He had not heard from them in many weeks, as it's common for soldiers in the field to not have access to uh, cell phones. By the time we left, a tearful Richard told us he had just received a call from one of his sons who told him him not to be concerned, they are strong and they are doing the job. We shared in his joy and in his pride and in tears and in hugs. It was an early preview of what was to become a common theme everywhere we went and for everyone we met. People below a certain age either just returned from reserve duty or have a partner serving there. People above a certain age have kids or grandkids serving in Gaza. The entire country is intimately connected to the war effort. From Zikim, we drove to Kibbutz Nahal Oz, which as you may know, Temple Beit Am decided to adopt and has raised significant funds for. Unlike some of the other kibbutzim in the Otev, Nachal Oz is still a closed military zone, in part due to its close proximity to the border fence and because it houses an army base next door from where the ground invasion into northern Gaza was staged. We were the first group to visit Nachalos since October 7th. We were hosted by Nadav, a 30-something-year-old sixth grade teacher who moved to Nachalos six years ago and whose husband, Rotem, was the coordinator of the emergency response team of the kibbutz. Nadav welcomed us near the central community building, whose wall was covered with a giant banner depicting the five original hostages taken from Nachalos, of whom three, one elderly woman and two young girls, had since returned. Nadav comes back to Nahalos every now and then to perform gardening duties, because the kibbutz's gardener, Omri Miran, was still a hostage in Gaza. Uh, while Nadav has done a great job ensuring the lawn didn't overgrow, the kibbutz still, still felt very post-apocalyptic, with dozens of wild dogs now overrunning the once vibrant community. Nadav walked us to his and Rotem's house, which was struck by a Hamas rocket in the weeks following October 7th. The broken glass was still on the floor, cracking under our feet as we walked into Nadav's home. Here, Nadav told us his and Rotem's survival story on October 7th. As the kibbutz's emergency response coordinator, Rotem was immediately in contact with Ilan Fiorentino, who was on on lookout duty that morning and who reported seeing hordes of hundreds of people approaching the kibbutz from the Gaza border fence. Not just Hamas terrorists, but also women, teens and elderly, looking to plunder, abduct, and kill. Based on this, Rotem decided that the best emergency response was for everyone to stay inside and barricade themselves rather than to try and fight off the attack. Since they were massively outnumbered, they would not have stood a chance. With that decision, Rotten probably saved dozens of lives in Nakhalos. Unfortunately, not the life of Ilan Fiorentino, who was killed trying to hold off the invasion of the kibbutz. All throughout Nadav speaking with us, the sounds of war... A few hundred yards away were ever-present: the buzzing of UAVs overheads and the periodic loud booms of artillery fire that literally shook the house on its foundation. Nadav told us about his best friend Livnat, who, together with her husband and three young children, were murdered by Hamas terrorists in their beds at home that morning, and about his in-laws who were escaping their apartment building under attack and how the footage of his brother-in-law being shot dead on the balcony of their building became one of the better-known images of October 7th. In a shaking house with the sound of bombs in the distance, we formed a close circle around teary-eyed Nadav, and together we recited Malera Rahamim for his friend Ilan Fiorentino and his best friend Livnat and her family. Before departing, Nadav spoke to us about how much it meant for him uh, for us to show up and listen to and support him the victims of October 7th felt deeply alone and abandoned that day. And Israeli society as a whole has felt this way ever since. So for Jews from America to travel 10,000 miles to hug and pray with him was deeply meaningful. If that day wasn't emotional enough yet, from here we traveled to the NOVA festival site. It is very hard to put into words the raw emotions of this place. Many of us remarked how it felt like visiting Auschwitz or Sobibor while the ovens were still smoldering. As you approach the site, over the roads still marked with charred spots where cars had burned out, you look across the fields and cannot help but recognize them from all the footage we've all seen of young people running for their lives in deadly fear. At the site of the festival, a memorial has been created for the 360 souls that have been murdered or kidnapped there. Each is represented by their photo, attached to a pole, staked out evenly across the fields. Friends, family members, and strangers have left rocks, candles, flowers, plants, and flags around each individual memorial. Because that's what it is 360 individual memorials, side by side. We took an hour to walk around the memorials, take in the faces, the names, the ages of these kids. Many were born this century, not much older than my own kids. Friends and parents of the victims left notes and and memories. And throughout it all, you cannot help but wonder about the senselessness and the brutality of it all. Jewish kids celebrating peace, music, and love, herded like animals, mowed down like prey, in the most awful reflection of massacres of the past. One of the things we did notice was that those attending the sites to mourn for these kids cut across all segments of Israel's previously divided society. As we walked around the memorial, dozens of armed and uniformed secular soldiers were visiting and perhaps reminding themselves what and who they were fighting for. While we stood reflecting as a group of conservative Jews from America, to our left, a group of scheidled and headscarved ultra-Orthodox women was sitting and doing the same, while to our right, a group of national religious boys formed a circle, arm-in-arm, singing Achenu. And while the artillery booms were blasting from what sounded and felt like very nearby, and the red poppy flowers that this part of the Western Negev is known for were blooming all around us, Truly, a microcosm of the juxtapositions we encountered all over Israel. During this trip, we also visited Kikar Hatufim, or Hostages Square, which was set up in front of the Tel Aviv Museum of Arts, and not coincidentally, across the street from the Kiriyah, the IDF headquarters, where also the war cabinet, cabi- <clears throat> where also the war cabinet led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, meets to direct the war efforts and the hostage negotiations. On the square, there are many art installations expressing the horror, pain, longing, and despair family members, and by extension, all of Am Yisrael, feel regarding the hostage situation and what the hostages must be enduring in the terror tunnels of Gaza. Family members have set up tents in which they welcome anyone to talk with them, learn about their respective relative, or to just deliver a hug or another expression of support. An artist has created an installation that recreates an approximately 60-foot segment of a Hamas tunnel. Traversing it, even in this short tunnel with two open ends, you can feel the air being heavier and more humid once you reach the middle. It paints a very pungent picture of what it must feel like for these hostages, to the extent that one can remotely imagine that on our way to lunch at an Italian restaurant in Tel Aviv. Uh, We had several opportunities to volunteer during this trip. In addition to the farming we did in the south, we we visited uh, an organization called Ezrat Achim, in mostly uh, ultra-Orthodox Beit Shemesh, where we prepared hundreds of lunches for IDF soldiers. We visited the headquarters of Achim Laneshek, now known as Brothers and Sisters for Israel, started last year as a protest organization against the government's judicial reforms. On the morning of October 7th, the leadership of this organization ceased all of their protest and political activism and leveraged their existing infrastructure that reaches hundreds of thousands to activate the largest civil aid project in Israel's history. We traveled to the headquarters of the Givadi Brigade, the elite paratroopers of the IDF, where we were hosted by the chairman of the organization, Yitzhak Levitz, that supports Givadi fighters, veterans, their families, including the bereaved ones, in any way they can, alongside his assistant, Yudit, who had lost her father, brother, and cousin on October 7th. Here we had the privilege of hearing in person from Givadi fighters who had driven up from Gaza to speak with us, as well as from a Givadi commander on the front who called in via Zoom connection. We learned about the effects of uh, October 7th on Israel's Arab population and the fragile fabric of Jewish-Arab relationships. First by visiting the Yad V'Yad School in Jerusalem, where Jewish and Arab kids learn alongside each other and are taught in both Hebrew and Arabic, and by hearing from Mohammed Darashin, a leading expert on Arab-Jewish relationships and a scholar at the Shalom Hartman Institute. We visited Har Herzl, the military cemetery in Jerusalem, where we paid respects to fallen soldiers. It was particularly gut-wrenching to visit the regrettably very large section dedicated to soldiers fallen on and since October 7th. We hosted survivors from Kibbutz Nahalos for Shabbat dinner and heard their harrowing stories of survival, each riddled with dozens of ostensibly small decisions and acts of heroism on that cursed day, each of which, had they gone slightly differently, could have easily prevented them from sitting for dinner with us that evening. We met with and uh, and listened to experts in various fields. We got to meet and have lunch with one of my personal heroes, Elon Levy, the English language spokesperson for Israel that many will know from appearances on TV uh, and social media. Since October 7th, Elon has been one of Israel's most effective public uh, relations warriors, not shying away from any interview or any question, and most powerfully, succinctly, and clearly laying out Israel's case, even in the most hostile forums and with the most hostile journalists. He shared with us his perspectives on the war, the hostage crisis, public advocacy, Qatar's role, and anti-Semitism, to name a few topics. We met with former Knesset member Tehila Friedman, who laid out to us her vision for building uh, on the renewed sense of unity between the segments of Israel society and ensuring a better outcome for the future. And we got to hear from the always tremendously insightful Danny Gordas, who is uniquely talented at making sense of complex topics, and helped us better understand the political and societal effects of October 7th and the war. A recurring theme with all these people we spoke to is how in awe every single one of them is with the young generation. The generation of kids that picked up their arms, left their homes, schools, jobs and families and are putting their lives on the line, sometimes unfortunately literally, in the defense of Eretz Yisrael and Am Yisrael and doing so with unmovable conviction and dedication to the Zionist project and to the protection of the Jewish people. Often described as the TikTok generation, of whom not much impressive was expected, everyone agreed that they are indeed the future of our state and our people, and that previous despair over how this generation that supposedly didn't understand Zionism or sacrifice was not only entirely misplaced, but if there's something to be hopeful about, it's it's actually that this generation will soon take over. When on Friday night we were welcoming Shabbat at the Kotel, Laura danced with a group of 19-year-old female soldiers and remarked to them, I'm so impressed with you. American kids do nothing but be on TikTok all day. The Chayalot responded, When we're not out fighting for our country, we are on TikTok all day too. (laughs) Let's get back to Parshat Truma and closer to Kiddush. Uh, We learned how God commanded every Israelite who is so moved to contribute to the building of the Mishkan so that he could dwell amongst them. It was this collective project of tzedakah and communal purpose that would bring God Shechina amongst the people of Israel. The Mishkan was the portable predecessor to the two temples that eventually would be built in Jerusalem and whose destruction we commemorate daily. In my industry, we would have called it a beta version before Temple 1.0 and Temple 2.0. Fast forward 1,903 years from the destruction of the Second Temple, on the eve of the Yom Kippur War, a despondent Moshe Dayan, Defense Minister of Israel at the time, contemplated an imminent demise of the Zionist project and proclaimed, the Third Temple is about to fall. It was not difficult to be equally despondent on and since October 7th. In fact, Danny Gordes put it uh, to us this way, on October 7th, Zionism failed. In the sense that our sovereign state was meant to prevent Jews from ever again being the so-called victims in waiting, for thousands of years, we lived at the mercy of our hosts, powerlessly waiting for the inevitable slaughter that always came. However, while the state institutions may have failed miserably on October 7th, and while we have witnessed and continue to process incredible pain, this mission left me with a strong conviction that the Third Temple did not fall. Zionism didn't fail. Zionism was reawakened from the beta version in the desert over 3,000 years ago to now the so-called Third Temple, every person whose heart is so moved heeds the call to give their terumah to the common cause of Am Yisrael. Israel is witnessing an epidemic of volunteerism. Families drive south on their days off to pick fruits. 250,000 internally displaced people are being cared for as best as possible by communities across the country. The IDF has seen 150% response rates to reserve co-ops. Donation drives have to turn people away. Ultra-Orthodox men who were fighting IDF recruitment a year ago are voluntarily enlisting. The next generation which everyone feared was doomed turned out, turns out to perhaps be our best generation yet. And yes, missions from the diaspora show up by the plane loads to volunteer, to listen, to bear witness, to hug and to support. If you haven't yet had a, had a chance to go on a mission, please do so, just go.